up here today. Someone brought an extension. So wash yourself. All right, everyone, please take your seats because for the first time in a few weeks, we actually have the good grace of there being a few spare ones. Uh, isn't that lovely? So. As usual, good evening everyone, and you're very welcome to what is I'm going to call the ninth or ninth ordinary meeting of the Literary Scientific Society at Queen's University Belfast. So it is time as it always is at this time of day to go over any announcements we have. First and foremost, I would very pleased to welcome our guest chair for this evening, the Commissioner of the Rights of Children and Young People for Northern Ireland. Please welcome everyone, Miss Kula Yasuna. As I said, any guest here can bring a modicum more intelligence than is usually ever presented. <laughs> so, um, any other announcements? I, on a more serious note, it's, I have to inform you all of council affairs and social officer Edmund Doherty, for personal reasons, has resigned his position. So, to inform you all of what is going on, but our social events for the rest of the semester shall be progressing as they were originally planned, and there are no changes there, so do not worry yourselves. Uh, the Christmas dinner, which is coming up very soon, this will be on Tuesday, the 11th of. Closer and closer to the money spending one. Um, which will more than likely, although I'll try to see about other fancier venues, will more than likely I think be going to Kitch Belfast and the Dublin Road, which was our venue for the previous few years, so we'll have that to look forward to. Other business, Matthew Bryson in the room. Hello, he's over there, look at him, he's looking great today. Um, right, so Matthew Bryson has got the responsibility for determining what our term cards are going to be for the coming semester. So, I'm going to inform you all about a concept called the internal meeting. Woo! Somebody's had Somebody's had heard about it before. That is where we have a meeting where we all gather into a room, which is even warmer than this one, and we bang out what the term card is going to be for next semester. We are going to put up a form, which has been lovingly designed by Mr. Matthew Bradley, who will be putting up soon, which is where you can all put up your motion suggestions, which are preferably to be put in, in the form of this house for leaves, this house wood, this house for breath. Etc. Whatever your preferences are. So keep your eyes peeled for that, and please put forward all of your motion suggestions so we get as diverse a birth of them as possible. Although obviously I just read the form afterwards and I choose what goes on. Anyway, um, I believe that goes over most of the pressing announcements we have. Have I missed anything, Matthew? I do not believe so. Mm. Do we have training on next week? Uh, next week. Uh, we need to work out of no mind speaking as we don't. Yeah, we, okay. We do not, but we'll have it soon enough, so if you want to be as good at speaking as I am, please make sure that you attend. Um, I do believe that wraps up. I really need to prepare these announcements before I do them. But since I haven't, would you please welcome up the Meister of Minutes, the Napoleon of Note Taking, your secretary. Welcome him up, please. Reading the minutes of last week's debate, which was this house believes sex positivity has gone too far. Taking the floor, Mr. Matthew Bradley.
You know what's going to happen. Mr. Shane Glasgow mentioned a recent report which claimed the only positive economic outcome of Brexit for NI would be United Ireland, and asked the House where the unionism was on its last legs. Mr. Jack Patton stated that unionism is solely tied to identity and is mostly something people have born into. Mr. Conmigal noted that it's tied to ideology, quite that the overall could be handling out 100 euro notes that still wouldn't change some people's minds. Then, with a very happy face, President Dolman opened a round of President's questions. <laughs> Mr. Russell then, embracing the spirit of the night's debate, asked the President to pick any member of the literary to have an illicit romantic relationship. <laughs> the answer was, of course, our very handsome technology officer, Mr. Jamie Kieran. With Mr. Dolman citing his lovely smile as a main factor due to the fact it brightens up his day. <laughs> Mr. Colmagall, referencing a recent White House press conference, questioned the President about whether he would remove someone from the set room if they asked a question he didn't like. <laughs> Mr. Shea Glasgow did precisely that. Mr. McDonald was taken on the motion. This House believes Mr. Shea Public Glasgow ought to be removed from the set room, which read 16 eyes, 27 days, and 7 abstentions. <laughs> After this interlude of tomfoolery, President Dobbin introduced the debate of the evening. This House believes sex positivity has gone too far. A vote of prior opinion was taken on the motion which read seven eyes, 43 nays, and 20 abstentions. Uh, now, due to its prevalence in this debate having been mentioned by two of the speakers, the following section of minutes was very close to being wrapped to the tune of Let's Talk About Sex but unfortunately, rhyming is hard. So here it is in the usual economical prose. You can't be entertained in every week. Opening for the proposition was Mr. Ryan Neal, who stated that the movement has many unaccounted for ramifications and consequences. 
and noted the increase of sexualized content throughout our culture. Noted the area of a rather racy music video on the Disney Channel, listing how highlighting that sex positivity, while displacing positive attitudes uh, towards consent, has placed an unhealthy focus on sex, with services such as Tinder reducing the need for relationships. Speaking first to the opposition, maiden speaker Ms. Jessica Nick Smith quoted Sultan Pepper, saying, Let's talk about sex, baby. That's why the joke was at the start. <laughs> Stating that the sex positivity movement needs to go further to counteract an outdated system of sex education based around abstinence. Ms. Smith argued that a lack of honest sex education means young people will turn to the likes of pornography to educate themselves, creating an unhealthy and unrealistic view of sex. Continuing for the proposition in her maiden speech, Ms. Becca McMinn stated that rather than relieving the pressures that come with sex, sex positivity creates a new cultural norm with its own set of pressures. Ms. then argued that this only positive attitude towards sex results in those who do not partake in that culture being granted as prudes, an example of hijacking healthy attitudes towards sex by advertising laws to sell products. Another main speaker, Ms. Olivia Montgomery, who spoke second for the proposition, noting that the whole point of sex positivity is to create an open dialogue to ensure that people are comfortable. Ms. Montgomery noted society's current heteronormative view on sex and stated that more LGBTQ sex education would make members of the LGBTQ community feel more legitimate. Highlighting the importance of consent as a facet of the sex positivity movement, Ms. Montgomery stated this attitude isn't suddenly going to make people go out it like rabbits, and instead promotes a more respectful, healthy attitude. Closing to the proposition, Ms. Kira Swale was also going to do the salty pepper thing, but didn't, as it had already been done. What a wise choice. Ms. Swale stated that sex positivity has heightened cultural pressures with regards to the concept of virginity, and claimed that the omnipresence of sex could potentially lead to mental health problems. Echoing points made by the first speaker, Ms. Swell noted the difficulty in shielding children from sexual content, utilising a case study of a video found on the YouTube Kids app, which featured Elsa and Spider-Man in a rather <laughs> imaginative situation, uh, and examined the damaging impacts this can have on children. Ms. Leanne Thorpe closed to the opposition in her main speech to society. Ms. Thorpe took a more corporeal approach to motion, stating that we should be more comfortable with our bodies. Ms. Thorpe blamed sex positivity and being comfortable with one's own skin and highlighted societal standards as to what we should wear and what is and isn't attractive. Questions? Now, before I move on to questions, here's the disclaimer. So at the end of last week's debate, someone stole my megaphone. Yes, I'm talking to you, Mr. Chris Hubble, and he would only give it back, he's kind of like a ransom. If, now to be fair, thought my suggestion to keep it up with the detail, if I sang his name during the minutes. <laughs> Thing is, Mr. Hubble had some ideas about how I should sing his name, and he wanted it in the style of Diana Ross. <laughs> An impression that I am completely incapable of. But that wouldn't stop me trying. <laughs> Questions were heard from Miss Mary Kate Dobbin, Mr. Russell Wynn, Miss Phoebe Crowdline, Miss Ronnie Graham, Mr. Mark Gilmore, Mr. Chris Hubble! <laughs> That round of applause was not proportional to what I did, <laughs> which was raise my voice a bit and make it go up and down. But anyway, a bite of the Pardon? The vote on speaker ability was taken on the motion, which read 16 ayes, 21 nays, and 13 abstentions, resulting in a conclusive win for the opposition. Now I take the minutes as read. Um, 
the weekly struggle is that I feel like every single Thursday I have to come up here and at least try to be as funny as he is. And every Thursday fail in that endeavour. So, um, it is now time for private members business, which is if there's anything going on in the world, in the world of politics or any other current affairs, as I've already said, I wonder if there's anything that has happened in the world, perhaps in the UK, perhaps in the last 24 hours, or so, that people might feel it's worth talking about. So, I am now going to bring that to the floor if anyone has something to say. I am going to go first to Miss Thorpe. Um, there's a easy story, oh, I'm not sort of things, but um, UK employers want to put implants into workers to put proteins in. Is that such a bad thing? I am going to go to Mr. Bannon. Uh, wearing the hat I normally wear in this case is the token trade union representative. Yes. At <laughs> <laughs> the end of the day, while the positive impact for security, workplace and that kind of thing is good, the ability to track workers and their day to day actions. For example, I don't think everyone in this room smokes, but several do. Uh, back when I had a job, I, was, uh, I would occasionally sneak out for a cheeky smoke break. Don't think my manager should really go about that. That's probably better for the implant. Well, the thoughts I'm going to go to Mr. Nair. This is yet another example of the kind of soul-sucking, corporate, dystopian levels of control that major corporations have been trying to continuously implant, quite literally in this case, upon people who are so uh, unfortunately forced to work for them. Um, we're seeing this rise continuously, continuously, in which corporations desire to have a greater degree of control over the lives and even the personalities of those unfortunate enough to work for them. Um, in this regard, it's something in this vein which equally annoys me is the way in which, you know, to get a job with any sort of major soulless corporation currently, you're usually going to have to face some sort of personality gauntlet in which you, um, you must answer their questions to prove that you are a compatible member of their little hive mind. Um, I think this is just another disgusting example of the way that um, corporate control is increasing and it's something that needs to be dealt with. Perhaps the real insult was the friend we made along the way. <laughs> I would just like to join Mr. Nairn in calling for the allegiance to smoking and capitalism. I love the shadow run. Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. But here's the thing if corporations are going to be implants and stuff for me, I want it to be someone that gives me lasers coming in the eyes. <laughs> Shocking me, where's the game for me in that? I'm no having this. Give me me jetpack or the very best machine coming coming out the arm that I can't actually shoot and actually I won't spoil the little cup. Okay, so now any separate pieces of private member business. There's so many things going on. I need a whole cabinet. So I'll go to Mr. McCarthy. We all know what's happening in the last 24 hours. Highly entertaining that we don't know in advance. I'd like to ask the question the historical ironies and parallels of Theresa May going to a phone and hire and trying to seek independence, yeah. coming back and trying to sell a treaty that defies her country. <laughs> um, if you go to a bit of 
Coach Barney, I must say, security of her position and such a... Mr. Rogers? Well, um, I'm not sure if you saw the same article uh, in the Irish Times by Stephen Collins pointing on the exact uh, uh, historic parallel of Theresa May going back to her parliament with an unpopular decision she could, doesn't expect to be able to uh, easily get passed and Collins doing the very same. Uh, and we came to the same conclusion, what better tribute uh, as we approach the centenary of Northern Ireland. Mr. Patrick, yes. Well, judging from the current situation, I think everyone deserves a second referendum.
Mr. Kieran, I always miss you when you put your hand on. So far, we need to talk about the other big issue that the BBC is pushing, one of the few other stories they've opened comments on. Is Detective Pikachu... <laughs> two trailers for Toy Story 4 in the last couple of days, and no one even noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first to, I definitely should know your name, I'm sorry, I don't Well, I think it's a disgrace, because it should by all means be played by Danny DeVito and not by... <laughs> I remember them talking about it was an article or something a few years ago where they said they were making it, but I considered it one of those films that would never actually came out. Yeah. And they just dropped on you that this thing actually exists, but I've been wanting that was about four years old. Mr. Glasgow, have you any thoughts? Yeah, in terms of like anthropomorphized whimsical like detectives, Detective Pikachu is actually second best to the DC Comics character, Detective Chimp. <laughs> <laughs> Sherlock Holmes hand solves mysteries. Like, where's the Detective Chimp movie? Now you view of voice him. This, truly, we are the number one spot on campus for Yeah. So can we just appreciate how good a Deadpool 3 reference was? 
tells someone and goes pika pika pika. You see the Super Mario Bros. movie, the abilities are really left there. We're getting into territory that is just like far too unrefined for this chamber. So uh, <laughs> if there are any separate pieces of private members that I'll allow them very quickly. Uh, Mr. Doherty. I mean, this is slightly absurd, but it's sadly also true. So um, last week in the whole chaos of the US midterms, uh, Jeff Sessions was fired as the Attorney General. He was replaced by a man called Matthew Whitaker, who previously worked as, um, in smaller roles in the US government. Uh, he previously had worked with a place for a company called Worldwide Pattern Marketing. Now, some of these, some of the things this company tried to make were a time machine, <laughs> a Bigfoot finder, <laughs> and the most, and possibly the most absurd, something I should really say, a toilet designed for the well-endowed man. <laughs> I'd like to know what the people think of this man having spent and received millions upon millions of dollars from this company, then becoming, uh, then going into one of the highest positions in the United States government. I'm cancelling the letter. Miss McQuillan. Well, I for one have spent many hours searching for Bigfoot. Christmas song that you shall be bombarded with over the coming month and a bit. Ah, God, 
few words for y'all about this. Uh, so, I work in retail, so I despise Christmas songs. I'm assuming that either this week or next we'll start off again. And Fairy Tale of New York is my particular being of existence because it is. Worked in the shop for four years, all right. This is this is my fifth, my fifth Christmas worship, right? You hear that song at least eight times every night for about four or five week, nights a week, and it just all blends together. On repeat, over and over and over again. So. Um, I'm going to tentatively put that in least favour. Not because I think it's the worst song, but it's the one with which I have the most backstory with. It would be, if I had an origin story movie, that would be the villain in it. <laughs> and as for favourites, I'll obviously go for whatever that one is that they play in the Coca-Cola trailer. <laughs> Proudly sponsored by Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> So, if I recall correctly, and I'm absolutely certain that I do, you entered into a contractual obligation last year for money to give a seven-minute speech about Jake Heer in front of the society. Why have you not done it yet? Bearing in mind that we will sue you for breach of contract if you don't. <laughs> It is a valid contract, I assume, with all, all well, the you receive money for it, so as I'm sure you know from your contract law lectures. That's right. You're all the right. Um, I'll give you a wee bit. No, I'm not giving you a wee bit of backstory. Is yes, the reason I have not performed this yet is because I forgot, <laughs> and because Jake Karen is just such an angel, he's not the sort of man who just mentioned this sort of thing to you. But if you're going to sue me. I could, if you wish, present the speech to him now that I absolutely have not prepared. We're going to break formula a bit. So here is um, my ode to Jake Karen. Which I'm starting now. Ode to Jake Karen. <laughs> Story for those of you who are in the know, and so that I can potentially increase the chances that I can actually fill seven minutes with this. Um, last year we had a charity council auction, which was a way that we raised money for a charity, which was dragged the same charity we had last year. And there were a variety of things offered. Um, Mr. Bradley, our secretary, last year technology officer, offered to send any member of the society who was the highest bidder a cheeky text every day for the next three months. <laughs> Last year's outreach officer offered to, to buy dinner for someone, which I'm just saying, 40 quid later, I still haven't got. And last year's president, Calvin Black, agreed to be someone's servant for a day, which I don't know if ever actually happened. Because we're all just human at the end of the day. So um, I'll tell you what I did, though. I was the external convener last year before I was dutifully promoted to the top of this very niche social ladder. <laughs> I obviously had nothing to offer. I'm a man of little skill, a man of little taste, a man of little talent. But 
there was one thing I could offer. My voice. <laughs> my praise. My friendship. <laughs> Who would accept this gift, you ask? Who would look at a man so dear, so sorry? <laughs> I wished to be revealed and serenaded in word form by her. And there was a boy there. A boy named Man. Nay, legend. Someone I could say I barely knew at the time. But when the bids were being called, I saw him stood up and the accompanying twinkle in his eye that has been in my heart ever since. The man's name was Jake Kieran. And what did he give for the seven minute speech praising him, you ask? It was, and I hope I remember the figure correctly, 35 pounds. That's what he saw as the appropriate memory. Now, I regret that up until now I have not given this speech because um, that he would do this is simply a testament to what Jake Kieran's character is. So now that I've given you the backstory, let me tell you a wee bit about the man himself. Jake Kieran is a mysterious man. <laughs> We've all heard of the man with no name. I introduce you to the man with no accent. <laughs> journey through London, through Dublin, through Belfast, through the through the savannah, the jungles, the deserts, the tundras, and braved it all with a smile on his face. I was curious about him because I didn't know his character, I did not know his story, but I do know that he is the politest man. Anyone in this room who's ever had a conversation with Jake, you know, he just has this like, this soothing, sultry tone. It seems to stay in the same octave, but at the same point, the longer he talks to you, grabs your attention more and more. That's his quality. And I remember hearing it when he gave his first speech at the Society for This House Regrets the Reformation. <laughs> hearing his speech and being soothed. An almost lullaby-like sense of sleep. <laughs> Which is why I gave a terrible speech that night, because I was enamored. <laughs> this was at a point where I believe that Jake had only briefly flirted with the society's and of ways. But over time, he and this grand old society grew a bit closer, a tad more intimate. <laughs> and it's, um, as I got to know him better, I only realized the greater qualities that he had. He is a man who will very often be there when you need him. He's there relatively early for his council meetings. And here's the thing about him. I'll tell him a wee story. We record our debates every week, right? And he's the one who records them. And if you go on to archive.org, yeah, is that the one? Yeah, that's the one. Archive.org. You can search for the letter epic and find any of our debates. And he has on each one of them about 20 different hilarious tags. I would reveal some of them to you now. But if you haven't, you can get your mobile devices or whatever, archive.org, and look at them now. And this is just sort of extra effort that he puts in. And he never tell you it's ever there. He never brag about it. He never put it in his Facebook posts or his Twitter feed stories. Because that's not how he is. He just sits there at the top of the room quietly every day and smiles away while the rest of us look on and go, <laughs> but no, 
Let this not paint a picture of Jake Karen that is one of an innocent goody two-shoes. <laughs> there is a lot more to this man. I have been in multiple occasions in various pubs or um across Belfast. And he just turns up. He just turns up there and you're like, whoa, what's Jake Karen doing here? And he's on some mad search with some club or society that I don't even know. And um, over the summer he took a trip to Amsterdam. And we were in our like council group chats or whatever we like to tell each other how great we are. And he just messaged us about 3 a.m. and he's like, hold on lads, just had this wee run in with the Amsterdam Mafia. These <laughs> mad stories. And he just has contacts in the weirds. Is that that's that's you no no questions for that? You should have raised your information. But look, this is conclusion time, and I hope I've given you something of a picture of who the man Jake Kieran is. I am honoured to consider him a friend of mine, even more honoured to consider him a colleague. And so I hope that it has encouraged all of you. To have a wee chat with the boy, because he's like pure lovely, so he is. <laughs> and I'll leave you with this, which is nothing more than Jake Kieran's handsome face and <laughs> even more handsome personality. Thank here, you. Here. questions there because I'm sure he's listening to me enough. So, uh, now that that's over and done with, we shall, as we always do, go to the prior opinion vote. This is where we all vote on what our opinions on this motion were coming into the chamber tonight. You know, our, how we think about it personally. So, I will ask you all if you would wish to vote in favour of the motion. This house believes children are the property of the state. Please raise your hands and say aye! That's a first. But look, he's all still showed up, so he's clearly in a fat set. Calm down a bit. And if you would wish to vote with the opposition, vote against the motion, please raise your hands and say nay! Hands up, I'm five foot six. Right. 
If you would please, Mr. Matthew Bradley, read us back what that book he done did say. On the vote of prior opinion, the eyes were zero. <laughs> <laughs> After the 12 abstentions. The nays have it then, the nays have it. So. <laughs> I do now, instead of the usual introducing the debate formally, do thankfully hand over to our guest chair who will give an opening address. I left university 32 years ago, and it feels having been here this evening, those 32 years have just slipped away, but thank you for that. <laughs> back to my 20, whatever year old self. The other thing I want to tell you is this time last year, last week, I was in Orlando sipping butter beer, and I feel all of you should have been there with us, <laughs> with our butter beer and our various Hogwarts experiences. So, I am Kili Zuma, and I am the North Island Commissioner for Children and Young People. See, that's already sent some people into the yours. <laughs> Pressure is on you guys here, because the debate you can win, you can win now. So if you lose anybody, if you lose anybody, <laughs> anybody goes to the eye, boys, you're in trouble. <laughs> My job is, is um, defined by law. Um, which is to safeguard and promote the rights of children and young people in Northern Ireland. So if we take this motion, this house believes children. So who are, who are children? Let's define, just to get your parameters right, define children. Children, um, as defined by the law, uh, the law of this land, is anybody up until the age of 18, up until the age of 17, 363 days. So that's children. There are about 435,000 children living today in Northern Ireland. So that's who you are, so, uh, you are proposing are the property of the state. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that this government, the one in England, in London, that presumably is in our Czech Twitter, is still standing. <laughs> has signed up something called the UNCRC. And the UNCRC says lots of things that I'm not going to bore you with. Um, but it says that it's, it's based on the premise of one thing and one thing only. That children, each individual child, is, has the rights, they own their own rights, because they're unique individuals. And that supposes that they're not the property of anyone. That we as adults care for them for a set period of time, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell the upset people, the 12 of you, who really couldn't make up your mind, and then I would question how you, the hell you got to the university. Involved in children's lives in three ways. 
Firstly, it provides universal services, which complements what parents do. And when I talk about universal services, I talk about um, healthcare and education for all our children, for all, and all of us actually, for all our children. Then it provides some specialist supports if parents need it. And it could be extra little bits and pieces, and in very extreme circumstances, it replaces the parent, where the parent can't do the job. But the term property, to me, implies slavery. It also, um, uh, ownership of a human being is slavery. And those of you um, who, the other term property, it goes back to the reason women, when they get married, heterosexual women, when they get married, change their name because they moved from the property of their father to the property of their husband. So if that's what you think is about children and young people, good luck boys in uh, trying to convince us. <laughs> I will, however, as chair of this debate, abide by the rules. <laughs> I will be impartial. <laughs> Um, before we get them satisfied. <laughs> so, so you are the ones that we will, I will be making sure to stick to the rules because they've got enough to struggle and they will get because I am the queen of the underdog. I will be looking after them. <laughs> so I am not going to say much more. You didn't give me a time. I assume you only wanted me to speak for a few minutes. Is that enough? However much. <laughs> and I'll save the rest till later. So good luck. Uh, we are going to be arguing uh, 
has stationed people from here to say that's our definition that we're working on. So um, the reason for this is that up until the age of 18, children don't have the mental or physical capacity to make the positions for themselves that would benefit their well-being and um, that would um, sort of benefit their well-being in a way that like they're able to say, right, this is best for me. So that's why they need someone to be able to be like, right, if if they're not able to do that, they need a parent or a legal guardian to be, right, um, my child might need this healthcare, so I sign up on this and yes, this is what this is what's right for my child. Or my child needs an education, I sign up on this and this is good for them. A child at that age does not understand that yes, this is good for me and this is what I need for my entire life, so they're, they're not able to do that. So that's introductory stuff. Now, going into what we mean by um, a standard of care, because I said that our argument uh, means that our, our argument is that they should, state should, they should be the property of the state in order to ensure a certain standard of care. Um, um, so, yes, when that standard of care is not met, should, states should be able to intervene and be like, no, you're doing it wrong, or no. This is not right. Um, and be, be able to like be able to offer help or sort of a body that children can rely upon. Uh, yeah, um, what you're saying is the state should be able to help when the parents aren't capable of doing their job. However, what if the state say its idea of care, we need to have a kind of very glossy image of what good care is, what the state tends to care, like you know, is like well, look who's strong working in the fields or something like that. But there are some steps that could be a view which could not right. so yeah. yeah. Okay. I get what you mean. Um, right. Just, I'm going to get on to that, but I'm just going to give a bit of like, historical background. Um, firstly, like, historically, children were sort of seen like, as property of their father. Um, and it was sort of a legal and sort of social mentality that you should not interfere with the family issues because um, family should, should be remained, like, should remain behind closed doors. And, um, also things like parents have the best interest for their children, which is not always the case. Um, so that's sort of the historical mentality that existed. But as we've seen in the legal sense, um, this has changed. The branch of family law and like its sort of the, its existence to deal with cases that sort of affect children in um, in situations where there is divorce or separation. Um, the entire the entire sort of focus is on a well-being of a child. And um, what I really want to focus on is why the mentality has changed. And that is because there was a realization that leaving family issues behind closed doors led to, like, led to more harm. The reason was that like, children were pissed. So we've no problem with the state coming in to step in in particularly dire and bad situations. Should the state be the body that raises children in the first place? I'm going to go into that, sorry. Um, Right, children like the reason like states should be able to like uh, the change was that they should stop the harm was because children were being neglected or abused and it got to a point where yes it was very like it was bad they were physically hurt like they could not live a good life or they were abused or like they were in hospital or they couldn't they could not do things that normal children would be doing that's like what we mean by health like if you, a child can't. Uh, is having headaches or is having or is fainting because they're not getting a certain amount of food or the care that they need, that it's an issue. And if their parents are not able, are, aren't we, 
aren't able to sort of care for them, then yes, like you should be able to rely on the country that you live in in order to help. And yes, what you what you're saying about the um, issue of what is harm, that is something that is still debated in the legal sense today because that like when the state should intervene is still something that is like very much debated. Should they leave it to when it's something so serious, or should they sort of intervene before they can get something so serious? Um, I like right at the at the like current the current law sort of regarding it right now is that state will intervene when there is a likelihood of significant harm or um, there is significant harm and that's when they would intervene. So that's something that's still debated, but the ability to sort of intervene is still important, like um, which also uh, sort of leads to. Uh, and I think that's what one of like my main point is that they should be able to intervene because that is uh, sort of maintains a certain standard of life for a child. And also, um, children should be able to rely on the country that they live in. Like they should like if your country is failing your you by your health, not, like not taking care of your health, or if you're being abused and there's not another there isn't another body to go to in order to help. Then your country is failing you. Then you're like it's not doing enough. And at the end of the day, we live in a like democratic society, and um, we like put forward policies that and like countries are sort of they want their people to be happy, and they want the people the standard of life within the country to be well. And that's why I think um, we should see. That's why I think uh, children should be properly safe to ensure the level of standard of life. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen of the House, guest speaker, Mr. President, Mr. Secretary, just before I get into the main points of my debate, a little bit of rebuttal for the first speaker of the uh, opposition. Although he thinks about the, state, uh, the high level of education and health care and the struggle of our children in modern day, I guess the key point that this is the state that provides the health care and education that is led to this group. Uh, the state funding that can support any child-centric services uh, that protects them and ensures that their rights aren't breached, not friends. Uh, past tragedy should not cloud our vision of the future and might, of what the future might hold, and neither should it have any bearing on the current state of affairs. Yes, it's a terrible point. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, now to move on. Uh, 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 we have the proposition to believe that children should be property of the state as this allows the quality of, uh, as the quality of parents fluctuate uh, from household to household and especially from generation to generation. What our parents knew is not what we know now. And this allows us to set a gateway to set a precedent of what a child's state of living should be and what parents, the standards parents should meet. The first one I want to address is healthcare and how important the state is in intervening in the health affairs of children, and especially in regards to where parents make decisions which are very concerning. Uh, such decisions where they just deny basic healthcare to their children, uh, deny things like chemotherapy, which are essential to, uh, for a child to survive. And one such case of this was that of Sarah Hirschberger, who was diagnosed with a lymphoma, plastic lymphoma, aggressive form of cancer at 10 years of age. After a very strong, positive first phase of chemotherapy, the growing process took its toll in the second phase, and the parents panicked by what they saw as suffering and decided to stop the chemotherapy treatment, which could result in the child dying. The state was then forced to intervene, and instead of pretending the state should be allowed to just force this uh, treatment to take place, they instead appointed a level-headed guardian who had the interest of the child at heart, and more importantly, wasn't just a puppet for the state that they could just say no to the treatment if it wasn't the right way of doing it. After this, um, and although preventing important treatment is a dangerous thing itself, the opposite can happen. In many cases we've seen, especially last year, where parents were forcing unnecessary expense, uh, experimental treatments on their children, especially in the case of Charlie Gower. Uh, it was unfortunately left uh, brain damage, blind, and death, and his parents were still trying to force a fruitless treatment which was going to have no bearing on whether or not they survive. And the state again stepped in to enforce that although what they wanted was there within logic, they couldn't just give up its animal if they wouldn't give up on the child. But it's more important that the child's suffering has to be taken into account. And although they betrayed the state as killing their child, it was more of an act of mercy than an act of murder. Um, although it can be seen as admirable, the consequences went well beyond the case of the child, but more importantly affected the actual healthcare system. Uh, the already stressed out staff of Great Ormond Street Hospital had to deal with protests, death threats, and almost assault outside their place of work uh, while they tried to provide life-saving treatment to countless children. Now to move on from the legal tangle between parents and the courtroom and medical professionals, there's something a bit less controversial. Anti-vaxxers. 
But the rest of Maxine's season was extended using us at times, for lack of a better word. We've seen a uh, re-emergence of such deadly diseases um, concerning conditions such as measles, which was thought to be eradicated in most of Europe, and especially in the United Kingdom. But now, in uh, the last six months, we've experienced 41,000 cases of measles across the continent. More than any 12-month period for the last decade. Uh, in England and Wales alone, in that same six-month period, we've experienced more than double the outbreaks seen in the fall of 2017. <clears throat> and why you might ask, would this happen? Primarily put down to parents being, as I said before, a lack of a better word for me. Without having experienced the blood force effect that was covered by the MMR vaccine, and things like whipping cough, which could easily decimate a generation. Uh, they have simply become ignorant how powerful vaccinations really are. And unless the state intervenes, the consequences could be dire for the years to come. So children don't needlessly have to suffer from disease that are so easily preventable. Um, I'll move on to my second main argument, uh, religious reasons. Another firm favourite in Northern Ireland. <laughs> uh, across the UK and the world, wider world, you see religious beliefs being forced in young children who most times no real understanding of what they're basically signing up to. And some of these face kind of ridiculous restrictions on what a child is able to do. Dietary restrictions, what they can do on certain days, etc. etc. depending on how extreme some parents are. I personally knew a woman uh, whose parents refused to let her watch certain TV shows like Harry Potter because they were worried that it might teach her witchcraft. I go on. Leading to the death, well known death of a 15 year old boy in England not that long ago. These restrictions of forced beliefs have had a profound impact on wider society and the upbringing of children and education, as well as the beliefs that they adopt in their view of the wider world. Here in Northern Ireland, religion has been used as a constant tool to divide the people. And I, feel that, I believe that the state, given more power over the, to intervene in the everyday lives of children, uh, could mitigate the influence of toxic parents and Relative forced beliefs, uh, that we could potentially see a reverse in attitudes with the sectarian beliefs in Northern Ireland electing a past where they belong, and hopefully the mistrust and hatred that currently comes with uh, these beliefs will be left behind also. Uh, advertising, uh, another point in Northern Ireland, uh, with advertising campaigns against paramilitaries, in some cases, right as I mentioned, the state could impede the grooming and pressurising of young people in Northern Ireland by paramilitary and drug gangs and encourage young people to come forward in the face of intimidation and remind parents of their duty to protect young people's sin and Thank you for listening to what was probably rambling and ranty and I hope you go for the proposition.
morning for Mr. Tanner Kirksman. Our, our respected president better breakfast cookery skills. <laughs> uh, 
But anyway, okay, on to my substantive points. Uh, conceptions of the state. So as I said, we believe that it's the state that's actually the property of the children. Um, so yes, we completely uh, accept the points made by the proposition that children are not of an age where they can necessarily, many children are not of an age where they're necessarily be able to make all the decisions for themselves. So they delegate others to make those decisions on their behalf. Um, but the right analogy for that is not of property, it's of trust. Um, the responsibility is not on the property, the whippersnappers, to operate in the interests of the state. The responsibility is on the state to operate in the interests of the whippersnappers. And this is more than just semantics. This is about the fundamental attitude here. In one moment, I'll detail some of the harms that do happen because of this, uh, of this backwards attitude. But first, I guess one more thing to bring it back to the most basic level. Um, and we'd ask, who is the state? Because the state is you and me and you and every one of us in this room. Um, that is who the state is. So we ask, do you feel comfortable with having somebody as your property? And if you recoil from that notion, then you recoil from this motion. Um, and there's definitely a point of there around motion, but I recoil, but I can't think of it. But anyway, uh, moving on to the second point, the state's attitude um, on children. So we can look at this uh, in multiple different situations. Um, the first, um, if, if you look at it in terms of child refugees, um, at the huge numbers of unaccompanied children uh, which have showed up at the doors of Europe seeking nothing more than safety um, and seek putting their trust um, in our state um, and in the states of Europe to, to look after them. But instead of the state taking people in and acting like you would um, if you have a position of trust to them, states have acted with that attitude of, um, of treating other people um, almost like property in the sense that treating people as something which, which they can uh, ignore or leave out with will. And that has obviously been hugely harmful to, to people. Take an even worse example um, where we see situations in the world where states do literally treat children like property um, in the cases of child soldiers, where states do literally um, take children and see them as nothing more than, um, than as tools of war in the same way that they see guns or they see bombs. Um, and that obviously has huge horror for children associated with that. Um, but perhaps in no area is the failure of the state for its children more apparent than in terms of climate change. Because when you look at here, you have an issue where the state has absolutely let generations down because uh, it has not seen itself. Um, so even if you accept the exact same roles of the state in terms of the role that a state takes in terms of providing healthcare and education, so even if you accept all of that, uh, we would argue that the state is going in with the wrong attitude, because it's going in with the attitude that um, we, are, we are kind of nurturing uh, the property that, that we own because we want to make sure that it becomes nice little productive members of society in, in uh, 17 or 18 years, rather than actually taking the long-term view that the state is there only to secure the best interests of those which are under its charge. Um, in terms of finally, very quickly, and passing on state biases, um, the state isn't a benevolent force of unfettered goods. The state can enforce division and bias as much as any parent can in terms of religion. You've stuck in multiple countries around the world um, where children are taught and segregated in terms of religion, including this one. Um, you look at issues where the state leaves out minority children uh, out of its teaching, um, LGBT children, uh, other things like that. I think mean, the state can be incredibly harmful in that, in that regard. So we would say, let us go forth and vow that children will come first. Ladies and gentlemen, let our children rise. Ladies and gentlemen, let this motion fall. <laughs>
safeguard. I just want to talk about what our guest chair said earlier. It's the safeguard to promote the rights of children. And as mentioned there in the previous speaker about what rights come from. Rights come through the UN, it comes through statutory bodies, and the UN, of course, comes through the states themselves. The state protects and enforces our rights. Now, Sean very clearly understood that this motion is frightening in terms of children defined as property. Property is a frightening word. Property is a word that sums up images of control. I don't think it's said like slavery. We are trying to understand that this property should have a unique definition in terms of our children. This is not about the previous states in the law. There have been many issues and examples of uh, previous states that have let their children down. We are trying to outline the future state of the law. We are outlining property as responsibility and as responsibility of the state. As Sean said, the standard of care is not met. States should intervene. They should have the right to intervene. And they should have the right to intervene as the most efficient and most effective measures necessary. And we argue that the defining children's property in this unique sense, this allows this to be done with the welfare of the child at heart of the issue. Yes. I don't think anyone's arguing that the state shouldn't intervene in egregious cases, bad or egregious cases, but I think what the core argument is whether children decide in those cases are inherited property of the state, and whether the state should be actually the role of the parents more so than their actual parents. If I can maintain the point and come on to later on, I would assume. But Finbar outlined that the thought of children's property of state is counterproductive and feeds sinister. And there is an element of sinister that using countless examples of history with people have been used as properties. This is not one all encompassing formula, however, it is a unique answer to our current issues that we face today. Now, it was also stated that this was virtue. This is not virtue, this is simply legal pragmatism. Children do not have the same rights as we do as adults. Legally, there are countless examples of this. You look at the consent issue. You look at the issue of children who have been tried for crimes. They are treated differently because they are children. And we all know what that is. Cameron outlined the benefits of the state, the many benefits of state intervention, which is here. And one point we're trying to make as well, in a manner of speaking, legally, the state already has proprietary control over children. You look at the case of, um, of the Evans. The state refused him to travel to, to travel to medical treatment. That was stopping the terms doing what they wished to do. That was required to control. And past tragedy should not have an impact on our future development of legal. Anti-vaccine, religious issues that have detrimental effects to the child. These are all key examples of why the state should have strongly Former course outlines the UN the dignity and the inalienable rights of the children. There's nothing in that definition that defies the state the right and the power to control in the human definition. He said the state is the property of the children. If anyone's in the development today, they would feel that children are in charge of the state. <laughs> and the reason why that joke works is that children are not adults. They do not have the common function to act at that level. Yet, what we must do is safeguard the children so that they can thus inherit the state. That when they inherit the state, they have had the right upbringing and the most successful upbringing. And what do you mean by the state? Of course, also, that we are the state. The children are the state. We are the people of the state. 
But it is our institutions, it's our statutory bodies, our law, our courts, that are the state. And these things define what we should, how we should approach the responsibility of priority children. Now, I sort of struggle to find a good quote to sort of make this point. And I most likely wouldn't call it funny, but people are right? yeah. <laughs> People are absolute things. Yes, here's me. <laughs> so, we all need a license to drive a car. To work with children, you need a background check. You know all the things you have to do. But to have a child, there's really nothing there. If you want to, if you're a willing partner, you can live life. On that point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I use that. Background check for that is going to be a very. No, no, I, I just. I'm not, I'm not trying to back. I'm simply saying that to work with children, you require a background check. If I can. Yeah. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we infringe and reproduce the rights of citizens. We've had enough of that in the past number of years. Um, but rather, what I'm trying to imply here is that we need to have. Strong, coherent check. There is examples of that. Yes. So people are by the board, but uh, so is the state. The state is made up. I, I more of that point, so I just an impression of that um, What we have, people, we must have strong check, and we've seen that that check the state has not worked in the past. I understand that I sense the sort of the beginning of, of the speech is that. The, the financial of property is a very scary thing. So we have to, as I said, acknowledge that the state already has strong control of our children. We're simply trying to codify this into a simple and effective way. The term property, of course, is rather disconcerting. And not only in the room, as you said, who is rather mistrusting of the state. And especially here in Northern Ireland, for half the population who values the property in the British state, I don't think it would do that very well. But we must acknowledge the wild parents, of course, have the primary role in bringing up their children. Children cannot be their property, but they must be proprietary rights belong to the state. They violate the laws in which the state covers them, the state can step in. Think of children being the property of the state as a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> It exists, but it is only implemented when it is needed. Parents are free to bring up their children as they wish, within perimeters, within their own rights. I know people said these, these measures already exist, but they do not exist in an effective manner that they should. This is not a radical reform of the law, but rather a way of streamlining it, developing it, in that it does not fail our children as it has done in the past. This is a rigorous mechanism that ensures the welfare of the child. We all know the issues and the difficulties the state trying to intervene in cases like this. If we decide that children, children are the property of the state, and I understand it's a very scary term, a term that many can feel uncomfortable with, but if you look at it with cold, hard, legal fact, it makes sense, and at the core of it, it has property, and property, it has the welfare the child and the welfare of society at its core. I would urge you, and I know it is a frightening thing to do, but I urge you to be brave and I urge you for the welfare of the children, for the sake of legal clarity and for effectiveness of rights of the child and welfare of the child, vote with the proposition. Thank you.
Just begin as a sort of traditional for the last opposition speaker to do so, which is some rebuttals. Um, you know, uh, John, you had mentioned the you know, CH convention, you know, all three speakers mentioned the CH convention. I feel compelled to point out that's a right the state already has. We are talking about a theoretical new version of the state's you know, behavior towards children where they are the outright property of the state. You know, and that is a different state of affairs than the one we currently have. The one we currently have is, you know, could be improved, but is working. The, um, and then like, Mr. Kirk's point. Um, I have to say, I agree. If only today's youth could share the sensible and nuanced views regarding sectarianism held by the Assembly of Northern Ireland, I think this would be a better And your children are indeed different, but as a great man once said, children are basically just humans with less experience points. I think the only truly ethical system of childcare and of sort of treating these members of our society is just is treating them that manner. It's simply as citizens of this nation with slightly less knowledge of how it works and how where they where their places. The opposition can and has regaled us with all manner of stories of parental neglect and instances where government intervention is vital. But here's the thing: the government can still intervene without taking the extreme step of declaring children to be property of the state. You know, children. You know, ch children shouldn't be properly safe, but they also shouldn't be properly their parents. If they're simply citizens, then in cases such as the Charlie Dark case, the government can still intervene for the same reason they would intervene if people were, were trying to administer unnecessary and painful medical treatment to an adult who is incapable of consent. Which is not to say, of course, that the idea of government intervention as some universally benevolent factor is true either. For instance, let's examine the migrant camps in America where children have been confiscated from their parents and quite literally become property of the state. These children were kept in cages, given no access to their families, and were, in many cases, essentially auctioned off for adoption. Now, am I saying that all governments are capable of the vile quasi-fascist successes of the Trump regime? Of course, my intention is simply to provide a particularly stark and recent example of the fact that governmental neglect and abuse towards children in their care is possible and happens regularly to this day in states that we would consider advanced. We, you know, you know and I was, you know, I did make some sort of largely from the about religion, but there are, again, you know, many states that are themselves religious and force religious beliefs on their citizens and on children in their, you know, and if children were put imminently as property in their care, would do so to them. Leave a child's well-being up to the all too variable factor of their parentage would be frankly responsible. But at the same time, to go so far as to make children the property of the state is going much too far in the opposite extreme. Trusting children's welfare, welfare in its entirety, an institution that is far from empowered. That's the danger of this sort of extreme. You know, uh, Mr. Ricardo mentioned this idea you know, that you know, governments are more reliable than parents because there is that element of accountability within a government. But if the children are the property of the state, Surely there is less accountability. There isn't room for accountability if they are the absolute property of the state. What, you know, what place would we have to dictate to the government what they can do with their property? You know, we can elect different governments that might act differently, but we can't. You know, they, they, they remain irrefutably the property of the state. If that, you know, if that, if that you know, change that Mr. Ricardo proposes is implemented. Now, the case of anti-vaxxers, you know, again, 
if the law is simply that all citizens must be inoculated, then the people who, with, you know, who withdraw their children from this inoculation would again be no more, you know, be no more than their rights than anyone else who's trying to stop an adult member of society from being inoculated. If we simply treat children as any other member of society, the same, you know, the same principles can be withheld without going to such an absurd extreme as to define children as the property of the state. The state, you know, again, the state provides healthcare education, such as Mr. Third point two. Again, the same is true as adults. So this is, you know, I, describing what the state provides to us all as being made property of the state is an even more disquieting thought than anything else proposed. You know, this is, you know, we are not property to you. Again, you know, the state is our property. We are, you know, the state is the government here. As they are the home to us. There is no scenario in which a citizen of a country should be regarded as the holding to the state beyond you know, the general social contract that remains within its laws and norms. Yeah, so I think while absolutely state intervention, state, you know, state education are all very valuable factors, we should not go so far overboard as to define children as property, as to find anyone, any citizen of a state as property. Is there any other any questions? Or Thank you. 
what sort of what point out in terms of what the population volume is. This is a new definition of volume for the children. And we have to have faith in our statutory institution. But that's not to say the statutory institution sometimes fails the have to do. But just because, for example, the court system, there's, as we've seen in Britain, in the British court system, we believe that the sky doesn't. We don't have to use faith and we reject ourselves from it. So I think it's a very fair point to bring up. But to, to look back and to look at, you can find numerous examples. But what the propositions are doing is that we need clear proprietary definition. And in those proprietary definitions, unless we're reading the law, we can perhaps put in something that would sort of protect against these disparities of sort of language. Anyone from the opposition wish to respond to that? Yeah, I, I agree with what was said. Um, and I think it leads into the fact that states often will have this kind of conception or idea of what children should be and any child which doesn't fall within that kind of general uh, general view ends up suffering a lot. So you have in situations where in situations in Canada where you have First Nations children but in multiple different countries around the world where anybody who is a bit different from an ethnic or national minority um, or for any for any reason doesn't fit in with that official narrative, um, sometimes it can be pretty bad in the States when the mistake is all right. Uh, questions now for the opposition. Mr. Perry. Is there any situation that you would um, be comfortable with children becoming adopted in state in some kind of terrible situation in which the lives of millions of children become you know, in danger somehow? Would you be comfortable with them actually becoming property in the state in order to uh, stir their Anyone from the opposition respond? No, I, again, I, I'm perfectly happy with children you know, receiving care from the state, receiving some kind of, you know, tenancy from you, know, being, you know, given housing by the state. I'm all for that. But I utterly reject the notion that that in any way makes them the state's property. That, you know, the idea that, you know, receiving basic care from the state makes you its property is some kind of feudal nonsense. I mean, I'm not having any of it. So no, I mean, absolutely, no, absolutely, I thoroughly reject any idea. I'm all for the state taking care of children in some kind of apocalyptic Mad Max scenario. <laughs> Again, I, I, as a proud advocate for the Mad Max teacher, I'm hard to be endorsed. But no, I, you know, the state can give care in these scenarios, but it, in, in no way should be allowed to take children as a property. Do the proposition must respond to that? You don't have to. You don't think they have to respond to these things. I think sort of this very sort of instead of you know children children property and receiving rights, but by defining them as property, we are giving an easier mechanism in terms of financing rights. And as Jim said, there are times of crises. Then the financial property to make it far easier for the state to intervene. See how difficult it can be for the state to intervene in cases for life for a child. And these outdated and old mechanisms do not fit anymore. Their definition will make it easier, more efficient, and protect the, the welfare of the child. Okay. And uh, now for any abstaining points, these are points directed to neither side or things that weren't brought up with any way to stay standing. Paul, Mr. Sparrow. Um, one interesting notion that I can't remember which side actually came up with it, but it was the idea that adults, um, that the state can interfere on their behalf, say in the case of a medical emergency, if they didn't have autonomy over themselves. 
However, what I want to put forward is this idea is that we could arguably already all be seen as property of the state. I mean, if I didn't pay my taxes tomorrow, I'm going to go to jail for it. I don't want to pay my taxes. I'd like to keep the money for myself, but I would go to jail for it. Say if I went and bought a house tomorrow and made that land my own private kingdom, okay? I'm going to have a policeman knocking on my door saying, that's not your private kingdom, that belongs to the British government. So we're all already effectively property of the state. So why should children be any different? I'll go to the problem first respond. I do Sure. 
I don't plan to try myself aren't part of the trip. <laughs> so to then say, oh, we should treat them definitely because of their age. Their age is the sole reason we probably should treat them differently because we don't, they don't have the life experience to know any better. The opposition is strong. So I think this is a very cheap answer and similar to what I was saying is, you know, we are all, we all are beneficiaries of this healthcare. And as you know, Mr. Rogers said, you know, this is, it's all part of the social compact. We all agree not to go away and murder each other and, you know, the state provides healthcare in turn. In order to preserve the precarious social balance that prevents me from reigning over you all as a Morton Tom. But yeah. here's the thing, right, you know, this is, yeah, the central point is, you know, we are, you know, just because we receive these questions and see it, just because we agree to the social contract that holds off anarchy, doesn't make us beholden to see it, does not make us its property. It simply means that we're not, you know, building giant monster trucks with flames coming outside. Yeah. Right on the top of it. And I, I haven't got my grenade spears yet, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> you better wait. Right? Oh, I think you can stare at Don't worry about <laughs> Okay, and we'll go to another question for the opposition. There are none. Groovy. Unless there were in this one. Right, uh, any abstaining points? Nope. Alright then. So, it is now my sincere pleasure to bring up once again our guest chair to make some closing remarks. Like the UNCRC and the ECHR, 
that lies solely in the hands of the state. As individual citizens or parents, we have no responsibility to be guardians of international human rights instruments, which is, I think, where you were going. But you didn't quite make it there for me. <laughs> Seriously, um, girls. Don't you use the boys as a generic term? I'm using girls. <laughs> <laughs>
And this is, our, as it always is, our vote on speaker ability. This is not on what your opinions were coming into the motion or what your opinions on the motion are now. This is about which side we believe collectively collating them gave the better or worse or equally bad or good speeches. <laughs> so, and this is our binding vote for its members only, so please get your membership cards. And I did mention this last week, but if you are a paid up member and you don't have your card, you can still stick up your hand and if I know you've paid, I can still point you as well. It's easier for the card, but I can also do that, so stick your hand up if you have paid. Right, so. On the binding vote, on the motion, this house believes children are the property of the state. If you would like to vote for the proposition speaking better this evening, please raise your hands and say aye. Aye. <laughs> So, and if you wish to vote in favour of the opposition that they spoke better, please raise your hands and say nay. And if it is your wish to vote abstaining, please raise your hands and go nay. <laughs> <laughs> I vote your vote. Alright. Silence all of you. Right, so it is now time to welcome up for one last time the Archdeacon of Archiving, Matthew Bradley, to read me back the vote. of debating at the Society. So, other things to keep in mind of, keep in touch with our pages for competitions that we're going to, for the social events we're having as we approach the end of the year. Is this, that's not working. <laughs> right, and as always we're retreating to Lavery's Bar to have a pint to discuss the kids and their rights. So, <laughs> If you're a fan of 
that's the place to be. <laughs> that was very rude. Uh, at any rate, that's all I have to say for now, and I do joyfully declare this meeting to be 